I don't think it's an accident that our first experience as human beings, the person of Adam and Eve, took place in a garden, an orchard full of food, uh, that food was a tangible sign of God's blessings to humanity. And in this Garden of Eden, this amazing orchard, uh, God fills it with every great and good, amazing kind of fruit for our uh, parents, Adam and Eve, to eat. I also don't think it's an accident that the very first prohibition given to humanity also is connected to food. God says there is one tree and one kind of fruit that you're not allowed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's interesting to me, God could have made any other prohibitions. He could have said, don't swim in that pool over there or don't cross that line or don't walk in that field. But the very first prohibition we were given, the very first rule we were given had to do with food. Well, if I take those two things together, the idea that God created us, placed us in a garden to bless us with food, and that God also gave us our first rule in connection with food, that makes me think God cares about what we eat. And this morning, we want to talk about that subject. So I'd like you to take a Bible, and I know you're probably expecting to turn to Romans 14. We'll get there. But this morning, I'd like to start in John chapter 6, the book of John chapter 6. And so if you take one of the church Bibles, they should be in the rack in front of you if you need a Bible. That's page 865, John chapter 6, page 865. Last week, and we will be again this week, we were in the book of Romans speaking about disputable matters. Disputable matters are those in which there is not a universal Christian ethic that is true for all Christians, all places, all time. It's things where God has not spelled out in black and white exactly what each and every person is supposed to do. Disputable matters are those where it is a personal ethical choice between individuals and the Lord. And last week we went through lots of different examples and I said to you, you know, you could take any one of these examples and spend a whole sermon going through this one example. I said last week we didn't have time to do that, but it is important to take at least two disputable matters and spend an entire sermon on those. And the reason why we have two is because there are two that are mentioned most uh, in, in Romans chapter 14, and they are what we eat and what we do with our time. And so this week, we're going to be talking together about the disputable matter about what we eat. Next week, we're going to talk about the disputable matter about how we spend our time. Now, it's very important to be very clear what we are not talking about this morning. We are not talking about weight. We're not talking about fitness. We're not talking about body image. There are very few verses in the Bible that have to do with weight, for example. There are lots and lots of verses in the Bible that have to do with what we eat, have to do with food. Every single one of us engages with food. And whether you're young or old, good metabolism or poor metabolism, in great shape, in poor shape, 
We all interact with food, and the point is God cares about what we eat. And this morning we want to talk about what God has to say about what we eat and then think about it in the context of Romans chapter 14. So please, this is not a discussion about being overweight or underweight or healthy weight or any of those kinds of things. It has everything to do with food. And every single one of us, we all eat. And today we want to think about first a theology of food and then look at Romans 14 with the example of food in mind. So for a theology of food, we're going to be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 5, we begin. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now the first and most important thing to know about food is that food is given to us by God to bless us. It's interesting in this story that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative to feed the people. He sees this crowd and thinks, <clears throat> excuse me, this would be a great opportunity to feed them. And so he says to Philip, let's give him some food. Now he's always got in mind what he was going to be doing. He's just trying to test Philip because Philip is working from a model of scarcity, which is food is somehow tied to money. And if we don't have enough money, we won't have enough food. But Jesus is working out of model of plenty. With God, there is always provision. And so Jesus invites all of these people to come and eat. And what I love about this story is they get to eat as much as they wanted. And there is food left over. It's a sign of the generous, gracious provision of God, and that's expressed to us through food. It's amazing that Jesus has provided all of this food, but the wonderful thing is food is not given to us by God simply to satisfy our hunger. Food is given to us by God to bless us. It's an invitation for us to have fellowship with him and with one another. These 5,000 people, instead of being sent off to cook their own meals, they get to spend additional time with Jesus and one another. And that in many ways, our hunger is given to us by God, 
so that we can seek the opportunity to be blessed by God through food. And the overarching idea is that food is a blessing from the Lord and it enables us to spend time with him and with others. My wife loves to cook food for our kids. Every time we go around the table and it's time to say what we're thankful for. Anytime it's, we ask our children what are they thankful for about Lisa, among the many other things they say, they always list the meals that she makes for them. She loves to give them good tasting. She loves to cook with them. It's always fun to come home and see them sort of making food together or engaging together in that way. I grew up in a family just like that. My mom loved to cook. She still loves to cook. I'm glad that my children are able to grow up in that same sort of situation. Do you know anybody like that? Someone who loves to cook, someone who loves to watch other people eat, someone who loves to see other people enjoy good food. Do you know someone like that? Do you realize that's what God is like? That's where that comes from. Jesus is overjoyed that he gets to feed these 5,000 plus people. God loves it when we enjoy good food. Again, it's not an accident that we were created in a garden full of food. It's not an accident that communion is bread and wine or juice. It's not an accident that Jesus in this very chapter is going to describe salvation in terms of food. I am the bread of life. The idea of everything that God has to give us comes in this metaphor or this package of food. God loves it when we enjoy food. It's a blessing from the Lord, an invitation to spend time with him and with others. That's the basic fundamental idea of food in the scriptures. There is, however, a danger associated with food. And that danger arises, or at least you can see it in verse 26 of John chapter 6. Every blessing that comes from God can always be perverted by sinful humans. Verse 26, the crowd who's fed follows Jesus around the lake, and they ask him a question. And verse 26 says, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The problem here, and it's the problem with every blessing that comes from God, but particularly with food, is there is a possibility that the gift replaces the giver. And that the food itself becomes a means to the end of experiencing the blessing of food, but apart from God. That in many ways, this crowd, Jesus says, now you're actually here not because you want to spend time with me, but because I provided you with food. And that's a danger for all of us, is to allow the thing that is the blessing to become the idol to become the thing that we seek after. And instead of food being the means by which we get to spend time with God, God becomes the means by which we get to spend time with food. We see this in Jesus' temptation. Luke chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. A bit of an understatement. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, what's going on here? It's noteworthy that the first temptation of Jesus has to do with food. Now, he's in the wilderness, and remember, I just told you that food is a tangible form of God's blessings. One person said it this way. Food is God's love made edible. But think about it. Jesus has gone 40 days without food, which means he's gone 40 days without tangible blessings from God. He's literally in a wilderness, but he's also in a spiritual wilderness. And the lack of food or the absence of food is a constant reminder that he is feeling separated or distant from the Father. What's Satan's temptation? To take matters into his own hands and to bless himself by feeding himself. Food is a blessing from God, so feed yourself. And in that way, you can manipulate God, you can force God to bless you. What's Jesus' response? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says, look, I'm in this wilderness, and whenever God decides he's going to feed me, he's going to decide he's going to feed me. I'm not going to use food as a replacement for God. But that is the temptation. And it is an incredibly powerful one. You and I go through this. We might be in the middle of a wilderness. Maybe things aren't going well at our job. Maybe we just hung out some friends who made us feel terrible about ourselves. Maybe we've been reading magazines or looking online and people are talking about weight or body image or all of those kinds of things. Maybe we feel like the Lord hasn't been answering our prayers. Maybe we feel like the Lord is choosing to bless other people and he's forgotten about us. Maybe we're thinking about, oh, my life would be so much happier if I just had this or if this took place or if that person left me alone or whatever it is. We're in the middle of the wilderness and we feel distant from God. But what we don't feel distant from is the refrigerator. And maybe it's subconscious, but if we walk over to that refrigerator and we open that door, there is a tangible, instant, material form of blessing waiting for us. And when we pick up that food and we eat it, we feel like we are able to bless ourselves. Hey, look, everything else may be going wrong, but if I eat this food, it is going to give me an immediate hit. That's exactly what this is talking about. The danger associated with food is that it can become an idol. It can be something in which we use it to manipulate God. We use it to force God to bless us. We might be in the middle of a wilderness, but we don't want to be in the wilderness anymore. There might not be anything we could do about our job or about our financial situation or about that friend that betrayed us or whatever, but we can do something about the food. And we use food as a replacement for God, which is what Satan is tempting Jesus to do. Take matters in your own hands. You can bless yourself. This is why in Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks about those who are far away from the Lord 
he says, their God is their stomach. That food has an enslaving power. Please do not underestimate the enslaving power of food. I was shocked this week when I sat down to study this passage. I thought, we don't talk about food all that often. We talk about lots of other things that have enslaving power, alcoholism or sex or money. Food is mentioned all over the Bible. Again, we're not talking about weight. We're talking about food. And for every single person, fit, not fit, young, old, for every single person, it is a possibility that food can be an enslaving idol. It has great power. And so the overall theology of food in the Bible is this. It is an amazing, tangible blessing from God. Food is God's love made edible. It's an invitation from God to enjoy fellowship with him and with others. But there's a danger associated with it that it can come to replace God. It can be something that we use to manipulate God, something that we can be enslaved to, something that can be an idol, something that every single one of us can fall prey to. With that general theology of food in mind, let's turn over now to Romans 14 and see what God has to say about food in connection with Romans 14. Romans 14 is page 921 in the church Bible, so turn over there. We don't have time to read through the entire chapter. Read through it on your own again if you weren't here last week. Read through it again. You'll find that food is mentioned more than anything else in this chapter. That's why we're spending this week on food. The next thing that is mentioned most often is time. We'll talk about that next week. But for today, let's begin in verse 2 and just kind of work our way through this verse. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, the overarching observation from Romans 14 in regards to food is it's a disputable matter. That's very important. What this means is, is in the original context, Paul is looking at a group of Christians. And amongst that group of Christians who are Christians in Rome, he sees there are some people in that group, probably former Jewish people, whose faith is weak And what he means by that is that they've come out of a background in which they are not allowed to eat certain meats that weren't kosher. The problem is, is that the environment in which they lived, you couldn't always be sure whether or not even kosher meat had been prepared in a kosher way. And so some Christians had made the choice on the basis of that to not eat any meat at all. Likewise, Paul is looking at other Christians in the church in Rome and other places, and he sees that they have the kind of faith, it actually is a stronger kind of faith, that realizes that all food is clean, and that God has created all things for people to eat, and so they're free to eat whatever they want. The important point for us in verse 2 is that Paul acknowledges that both groups are right. That's what makes this a disputable matter. You've got two different Christians doing two different things, and Paul is commending both of them for what they're doing. That means we don't have a universal ethic. We have a personal ethical situation that is between us and the Lord, meaning that one Christian can make one decision, 
and another Christian can make a different decision, and both of them, though they're doing different things, are doing the right thing. You see, the same thing about our faith and our struggles determining how we relate to food, that's still true for us today. In the first century, they put some boundaries in place because some people in the congregation realized that food could be a problem for them, and so they set some rules in place, and Paul says, good job. Other people didn't have the same struggle with food, and so they didn't set rules in place, and Paul says, good job. So it is with us today. Some people have very strong faith. They have the ability, no matter what wilderness they're in, if they haven't heard from God for a while, if they feel like their prayers aren't being answered or things aren't going well, they have enough faith to believe, well, at some point God's going to bring a blessing along. I don't have to turn to food to try to use that to fill that void. Some people have enough faith uh, to be able to realize that God is a gracious, generous, providing God, and when you go away on that business trip and the company is paying for all of your meals, you don't have to gorge yourself on the company's bill because the Lord will still provide meals for you when you come home. It's all his money anyway. And some people have the faith to say, look, I don't have to eat all this fancy food right now. There'll be more fancy food later whenever the Lord discerns that's right. Some people have the faith to realize that if you can't add one hour to your life by worrying, you certainly can't add one hour to your life by eating healthy. (laughs) Is that not true? I mean, does it not say that our days are written down in a book before any one of them came to be? Some have the faith to realize the way Romans says this verse 9, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Then it's not necessarily my job to determine the day of my death or to try to extend it. Some people have the faith to be able to do that. Some people have the faith to realize that we were not created simply for pleasure. And that whether it's sex or food or money or whatever, that we don't have to crave the latest pleasure. And just because it's available doesn't mean we have to take advantage of it. Some people have the faith to be able to see beyond pleasure and to realize that sometimes God withholds pleasure from us, whether it's sex or food or money or whatever it may be, to bless us. And we don't have to to crave pleasure the way that we do. But for others of us, and I would put myself in this category, our faith is weaker. We get in the middle of a situation where we haven't heard from God in a while, and we get nervous. And we think he's not going to bless us anymore. We go away on that business trip, and we think the company's paying for this meal. I can order whatever I want, and I should order whatever I want, because who knows the next time the company's going to pay for the meal. (laughs) Our faith is weaker to think. Man, if I don't eat the right things, I'm going to die an early death. Our faith is weaker to think. There's no way that God would withhold pleasure from me. I should be able to eat whatever I want to eat because I was created for, to enjoy life. The point is, every single one of us in this room has differing levels of faith. And every single one of us in this room have differing struggles with food. And the point is, it's a disputable matter, meaning... Each one of us is going to have an individual way of engaging with food, and that's from the Lord. 
There is no way to have a universal rule when it comes to food because we're all different individuals and we all have different struggles. And for you, you may not have any struggle with healthy eating. I may have a struggle with healthy eating. You may have a fear of death. I may not have a fear of death. You may not crave pleasure. I may crave pleasure. Whatever it may be, we're all different individuals. And the point is, God says, each one of us has to decide between ourselves and the Lord, how we're going to engage with food in a way that it is a blessing and an invitation to fellowship and not an idol or an enslaving power. And that's the fundamental observation. It's different for everybody. It's a disputable matter. And please, do not let anyone tell you differently. It's written right here. It's the prime example of a personal ethical choice between you and the Lord. So what do we do with this? Well, last week I gave you five principles from Romans 14. Let me run back through those five principles using food as the example, and then I want to give you some applications for our life. Okay, so the five principles last week, number one, no judging. Indisputable matters. You may decide one thing. I may decide something different. It's between me and the Lord. It's between you and the Lord. What I am not allowed to do is judge you. And what you're not allowed to do is judge me. That's very, very clear. When it comes to food, if you know someone who's decided to be a vegetarian, you don't have any right to judge their reason for doing that or their motive for doing it. That's not between them and you. That's between them and the Lord. If somebody in your life has decided they want to engage in Daniel fast and they like to participate in the Whole30 diet and that's something that the Lord has given them to help them keep control of food, you don't have a right to judge them for doing that. They likewise don't have a right to look down on you for not doing it. If there's somebody who has decided that they want to be able to fast once a week because that's an important thing for them to kind of make sure they have the right attitude towards food. They can't judge you for not doing it and you can't condemn them for doing it. That's the point. With food, there is no judging. And the idea here is your decision about food is between you and the Lord. It's not between you and your spouse and it's not between you and your friends and your small group. It's not up to them. It's between you and the Lord. And you and I do irreparable damage to one another when we try to make others' relationship with food look like our relationship with food. Every single one of us is an individual. Every single one of us has different struggles in our faith. Every single one of us has our flesh activated in different kinds of ways. And God says, every single one of you needs to make a decision with food. And when you do, it's between me and you, and it's not anybody else's business. So stop judging one another. Stop condemning one another. Number two, no gray. Last week we talked about that when you look out over a congregation this size, it's going to look gray, but there isn't actually any individual gray areas. The point is, is that for some people, uh, their issue on this is black, and for other people it's white. And the point is, is that there's no gray in that. For every single one of us, there is a right way and a wrong way to engage with food. It's just that it's different from person to person. But please don't miss the point and think, well, I'm free to do whatever I want with food. Food's something that Christians don't agree on, so I can do whatever I want. That is not what this says. What it says is, Christians disagree with how to interact with food. The point of that is there is a right way for you and a wrong way for you. It's not that there's no right or wrong. And so it is with food. Every single one of us 
needs to work out between ourselves and the Lord what is the right approach to food. Number three, no stumbling blocks. If your spouse has decided to participate in a Daniel fast, we're not supposed to make fun of them. We're not supposed to tempt them to break the fast. We're not supposed to accuse them of legalism. We're not supposed to be a stumbling block for them. We're not supposed to flaunt the food that we're able to eat. The point is, is that if someone has made a decision between them and the Lord, you're not supposed to cause them to stumble. And that lots of us, by what we say to one another, we talk about how much weight we've lost, we talk about whatever it may be, that's never the focus. But it can be a stumbling block. And us telling everybody about all of those things, that can be harmful, which is why point number four, no blabbing. We talked last week from this passage. Whatever you believe about these things, verse 22, keep between yourself and God. Food is one of these things we tend to tell everybody about. We tend to tell them about our freedoms with food, not realizing that when we brag about what we're able to eat, or what we engage in eating, that can be a real stumbling block for somebody for whom food is a huge temptation. Again, what we forget is that food is as much, if not more, a temptation than alcohol or sex or money. And we've come to a realization, if you're hanging out with an alcoholic or somebody who struggles with alcohol, it's not very helpful to drink in their presence or talk about it. How much more so with food if you're hanging out with somebody who, for whom food is a struggle and you're constantly talking about your fitness and your diet and your health and all of those kinds of things. That can be a stumbling block to them. And the point is, why not keep this between you and the Lord? Number five, no doubt. Doubt is one of the things that the Spirit uses to tell us that maybe something's wrong in this area. If recently you've been doubting whether or not you might be eating too many sweets, that can be the Spirit telling you something might be out of balance in your relationship to that food item. doesn't matter what the people around you are doing. The Spirit is trying to talk to you to say you and I have to have a different agreement than they do. If you are engaged in super healthy dieting and, and living and you're eating all of this food but you're doing it out of fear of death or fear of what others think of you, the Bible says, verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. It's actually possible to have an over-rigorous diet that's actually sin because it's coming out of fear, an attempt to control your health, an attempt to control how others view you. And the point is, look, God uses doubt to try to tell us maybe something's not right in this area. Okay? So what do we do with this teaching? I want to just leave it with you. I mean, James says, if you see your brother in need, don't just say be warm and be fed and go on your way. The point is, what are you and I supposed to do today in light of this teaching? Let me give you four applications uh, from this passage for us today. Number one. Recognize that God accepts you in this area and invite him into the process to help you. I want you to look very carefully with me with verses three and four. And if you've got your own Bible and a pen, I'd like you to at least consider, especially if food is something that can be an idol, 
or a difficult thing, I'd like you to consider underlining a couple phrases. Verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. And here's the all-important phrase. For God has accepted them. If you're underlining, underline it. If you're taking notes, quote it. Write it down. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servant stand or fall. And here's the next phrase to make sure that you know. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Underline that, memorize it, write it down, know it. What does God say? When it comes to food, the Lord has already accepted you. What you eat or don't eat has no bearing on how much God loves you or doesn't love you. He loves you totally and completely. And what you choose to engage in from a food point of view, even if it's sin, we're going to get to that in a minute, that does not stop God from loving you. Perfect love casts out fear, and so much of the problem that we can have in relationship with food is misunderstanding what God thinks of us. We think we're acceptable to this world based on body image, based on weight, based on X, that God doesn't even talk about. And so we think we're acceptable based on food. And God says, that is a lie. You were loved before even one of your days came to be. That while you were God's enemy, he sent his son to die for you. There is nothing you can eat and nothing you can abstain from eating that will cause God to love you anymore. He can't. You are his daughter. You are his son. No matter what anybody else says about you, no matter what the world says about you, no matter what your own heart says about you, you are accepted. Do you read that? For God has accepted you. Not God might accept you or God will. God has already accepted you. And even if your family of origin, even if the people sitting around you, even if everybody you know judges you and despises you for what you eat, God has accepted you. Please, please know this. The other super encouraging thing is when you think about food. Look, this was written about food. <laughs> I'm not just applying this to another. This was written about food. They will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some of you don't know anything about the power of food necessarily. It's not an idol for you. It's not an addiction. You don't have any problem with that. I know about the power of food. And I realize that food can be an incredibly powerful force. So much so that no matter what willpower you use, no matter what kind of effort you put in, you simply cannot overcome it because it is a spiritual power. And that it's a way that Satan or others have lied to you. If that's your situation, I got some really, 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 really great news. They will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. God will give you victory. That's what this says. And it is specifically about food. And it's with the recognition that food has an enslaving, addictive power. 
But this verse says, talking about food, the Lord will cause you to stand. And so the principle is, invite him into the process. Ask him for help. Every single one of us has a uniquely designed faith. Every single one of us has struggles in our flesh. There's one being in the universe that knows and understands those and has the power to help, and it's God. He knows. Look, what your friend is doing or what your spouse is doing or what your kids are doing or what your small group is doing, that may or may not work for you. But God, he knows exactly what you need. He wants to help design an attitude and a mentality and a set of rules to deal with food in such a way that it is a blessing and not a curse. Please, if I told you this morning, we went out and hired a bunch of food consultants and they're all going to be available after the service and anybody who wants to come forward and talk to them free of charge, come forward and do that. Many of you would be like, great, awesome. I'm telling you that the God of the universe who knows you and food and has the power to help wants to design a specific program just for you to help food be a blessing and not a curse. And the application is ask him. Invite him in. We invite everybody else in. We read whatever magazine and say, well, I'm going to try that. We listen to our friend and say, I'm going to try that. God's saying, let me come help you. And I have the power to make it happen. Please, if you've struggled with this for any period of time, you know the powerlessness, right? The powerlessness. Listen and have faith. They will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And whatever it is you need to be successful in this area, God is promising to give you. So application number one, Know that God accepts you and invite him into the process. Number two, we may need to confess some sins in this area and accept God's forgiveness. One of the real problems with food and any addiction is it works on a shame-based model. Satan tempts you to use it, food, sex, money, whatever it is, as a replacement for God. And then when you do, and it turns out not to be the blessing it was supposed to be, then you feel guilty and shame-based, and you feel further distant from God, and you want to use that thing again, and it's a shame-guilt cycle. God's solution is, look, there is sin associated with this. Some of us here this morning, many of us here this morning, may have sinned against the Lord. We may not have asked him into the process. We may have made our own decisions. We may be guilty of having allowed food to be an idol. This is not one of those things that you kind of convince, confess once when you're like 20 years old and never think about it again. This is an ongoing daily struggle. <clears throat> Some of us, there may be eating disorders. There may be undereating or overeating. There can be problems with being a stumbling block to somebody else. We can be judgmental in this area. In this area, there is lots of opportunity for sin. Just because different Christians do different things doesn't mean it's not sin if you do something wrong. There is a wrong way for you to engage with food. And the point is, if you, like me, have done that, confess that to the Lord and accept his forgiveness. And it's okay to confess to the Lord daily mistakes that you've made in this area. Don't let Satan lie to you and tell you you get a certain number of, of, of asks for forgiveness and then you're out. That is not the way it works. So application number two is confess. 
if we ignore that there's sin in this area, well, then we've just made our, our flesh a playground for Satan. Remember, God is the one who's able to make you stand. The only thing that kicks God out of your life is sin. And all you got to do is confess, Lord, I don't think I've actually asked you into this process. I think I've been listening to my friends. I think I've been listening to everybody else. I don't think I've been listening to you. Please forgive me for that. Number three, help one another. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification, meaning build one another up. And the point is, for mercy's sake, food can be a ridiculously strong idol. It can be a horrendously difficult thing to deal with. And God's point is, help one another. If somebody in your family is struggling with sweets, why not give up sweets with them? If somebody is going on a Daniel fast, why not walk alongside of them and encourage it and do it with them? If somebody you know is struggling with an eating disorder, be willing to pray for them and come alongside of them and encourage them that they might need to get help with this, that things might not be right between them and the Lord, but that God wants to help them. Whatever it may be, the point is we ought to help each other with this. We've spent way too much time judging one another and putting stumbling blocks in each other's path. And again, this is not a weight thing. It's a food thing. And there are people all around this room that you'll never be able to tell, but it's a real struggle and an addiction and an idol. And the point is, let's help one another. Let's build one another up. Let's pray for one another. This is not a matter of, hey, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not a matter of, well, try harder. It's not a matter of, here's the silver bullet. If you just try this, it will fix everything. This is a matter of spiritual warfare. It's a matter of idolatry. It's a matter of addiction. We don't say to an alcoholic, hey, just try harder. We say, get help. And then we try to be part of the help. So it is with food. Help one another. And then fourth, the last application. Consider the fact that Lent starts this week. I don't think that I knew this when I set up the preaching calendar, but when I got here this week, I thought, wow, this seems pretty applicable. Lent starts on Wednesday. Lent is a season in which we associate with Jesus in the wilderness. That's why at Lent we often give up some food item is because we are connecting with Jesus in his fasting. Perhaps the Lord arranged this sermon this week for you for the next 40 days starting on Wednesday, taking Sundays off, starting on Wednesday to think through Lord, is there something that I could put in place that would be helpful for me in not allowing food to be an idol? Now, for some of you here, fasting from something during Lent that's a food issue can actually be a stumbling block. And so I'm simply here to tell you, ask the Lord. Maybe he's lined up Lent for you this year because there's something you can do that might be helpful in thinking through. Some people whose faith is weak Uh, they're only allowed to eat vegetables. Others eat everything. Ask him where you are on that. And if there's something during Lent you might be able to give up or not give up that might help you let food be a blessing and not a hindrance.
because that's the point. God has given us food to bless us, to invite us into fellowship with him and with one another. There are some dangers associated with it. So what we want to do right now to kind of close the sermon is I want to give you an opportunity to do points number one and two that I just gave you. We're just going to have some uh, silent time. It's a chance for you to confess any sins that you might have if you've not invited the Lord into this process, this is an opportunity to ask him for forgiveness. If you've been a stumbling block to others or have been judgmental of others, this is an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. It's also an opportunity to invite him in, to acknowledge your helplessness, to ask him for help, to claim this promise that you are accepted and that God will enable you to stand. So take a couple of minutes. There'll be some verses on the screen that would help you as you think through this.